0: As evident from our initial podcast with Dr. Gordy Hill, he's one of our sport's greatest living legends. He's experienced such a big, extraordinary life that just one podcast wouldn't do it justice. I think you'll agree, this one's as powerful as the first. We hope you enjoy. We broke everything, we broke lines, we broke hooks.
1: We broke rods, we broke our minds, we broke marriages, we broke the
0: whole thing. We uh, came up with the idea of going out that night and chasing girls and whoever had the biggest pair of panties won the pot. I knocked another arrow and he turned around the other way and I shot him going through the other way. So I double lunged him both ways.
1: But it was nothing for us to paddle an air mattress out into government cut.
0: I got him on. All right, now we're going to teach him a lesson.
1: I'm just an old guy that likes to fish. I'm not quitting
0: yet. And he said, well, who the hell do you think you are, Sue App? And I said, that's exactly who I am. Life's journey to the grave should not be one arriving with a pretty, well-preserved body, but rather skid in broadside in a cloud of smoke, thoroughly torn out, thoroughly used up, proclaiming wildly, wow! What a ride. <laughs> There's something fishy going on here. Gordia, so it's so great to have you back. I mean, we spent an hour and a half, and I felt like our conversation was very incomplete. I, understand. I mean I mean, you are so large a life, you know, and I think we really documented your medical history extremely well and we tapped into the fishing world. And since the other podcast, um, I'd just like to remind everybody a little bit about something I read uh, during the first, the opening part of the previous uh, podcast, which represents your statements. Just remind everybody. Over my years, I've also thrilled to leap of large Atlantic salmon or that of a much smaller landlocked salmon. Then there is the spectacular leap of a big Mako shark I also love the amazing way a hooked spinner shark twists and spins around in the air. I still recall with pleasure the shining silvery leap of a tarpon or of a trophy sized queenfish. The aerobics of an Australian Saratoga in the billabongs or a leaping she fish above the Arctic Circle. Then there are sometimes awesome leaps that billfish make. Tattooed onto my brain is the vertical leap of a broad bill swordfish as it tries to spear a full moon as it comes shooting up like a Polaris missile. Though I've tried many times, I've never hooked one on fly. And now, uh, that, and now that I'm no longer young, never will. I mean, I think that covers a pretty big spectrum of your traveling fishing career. You know, what, what, you know, what I'd like to do is, is visit one of the most outstanding memories. You you talk about having that big uh, billfish, uh, swordfish, trying to spear a moon. Tell me about that story that evening.
1: Well, I went out with a fellow named Ernie Biedemann who had a a big uh, sport fisherman. And uh, we went out in the evening uh, out of Baker's Hall over, which is North Miami. Uh, we put out our baits, this was not on fly, this was on uh, regulation trolling tackle, uh, But uh, except for the line which was 50 pound test. Usually for marlin we used uh, a much heavier uh, line than that. Um, and, uh, but I wanted to catch a swordfish on 50. Uh, we put out our, our baits and it was full moon, it was just beautiful. And it wasn't long before I hooked up, and uh, this fish uh, was just immense. Uh, She leaped, uh, I say she because it was a female, Uh, she leaped uh, high vertically. And when I say like a Polaris missile, that's not far off. I mean, she exploded from the water, and the moon was right above her. looked like she was trying to stab it. (laughs) Uh, And it's emblazoned on my brain. I'll never forget it.
0: Did she completely clear the surface of the ocean?
1: Oh, by a mile. Really? Oh, oh yeah. It, it, her tail was probably 15 feet above the
0: uh, highest wave. And how big was this this billfish?
1: Well, we later uh, uh, boated her, and uh, she was uh, 506 pounds.
0: Wow. And how long did that take?
1: Well, that's the whole story. Uh, this fish was tough, and she kept going north and leaping. Uh, and uh, then then settled down and just kept going north, and so was the Gulf Stream. So uh, to make a long story short, we fought her for 15 hours and 15 minutes. Oh, my Lord. And finally got her to the transom. When we got her to the transom, there was a, uh, a smaller male right with her. Yeah. And uh, uh, she started going crazy with her sword, and she did uh, thousands of dollars worth of damage to Ernie's uh, transom before we could, uh, uh, or after we got a gaff in her. The mate got a uh, got a, a, ga- a flying gaff in her and we opened the tuna door, but we didn't dare slide that fish on board yet. It was quite a while before she settled down. The mail disappeared and we finally slid her on board. Well, I couldn't get out of the fighting chair after all that. Every joint in my body was stiff, so the guys had to lift me out, bring me back to the cabin, and stretch me out and lay <laughs> me down on one of the bunks for a while.
0: <laughs> what a remarkable story. What a what a great catch. But you were also we, saying we earlier... We landed
1: her 100 miles north of where we hooked her.
0: Wow. Yeah. I, but I would think, too, you're talking about how this, trip, this fish is traveling north with the Gulf Stream. Yes. How difficult is it to put pressure on a fish that you're following
1: well we tried to put all the pressure we could i mean i had a bent rod scenario to the max
0: so you just kind of like stay with that fish because i was wondering sometimes chasing tarpon if the boat's moving with the fish it's hard to apply a lot of pressure i was always wondering what about if you apply big pressure with your drag and you get close to the fish and let that fish pull drag and then chase it down we and tried all of the above, all, all believe tricks. me. Is that a trick that you guys normally Absolutely. use offshore? Absolutely. Absolutely. Works I, great on blue marlin. Right. But you were also saying that, that you loved bill fishing. Yes. And in the early years, I think it was uh, Doc Robinson that was one of the first to catch billfish on fly, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. And did you fish with him?
1: No. I didn't even know him. I never met him. He was out on the West Coast, but, he, uh, but Doc made videos. Of his catches. In fact, you can see one still today if you want to look it up. Uh, Doc Robinson's first uh, striped marlin on fly. He'd caught a lot of sailfish, but he caught them uh, by trolling a teaser and then taking the teaser out of the water the way most people do. And then uh, you have a chuck and duck uh, cast, right. uh, casting uh, uh, the whole chicken. Uh, out on the water, right, uh, and and the switch often works and sometimes doesn't.
0: Was that before they were taking the boat out of gear before the fly is delivered? I don't or remember. Or was that after the I th- fact? I think that happened afterwards. Right, once they understood the the dynamics of yeah. raising billfish. Yeah. But you chased a lot of marlin, right? Right. Was that, of all the fish that you chased, was that the premier fish for you? Um. Blue I, know, marlin. I know you're a great tarpon fisherman. No, no, but-
1: they each had their own advantages as far as my uh, brain is concerned. I love the little white marlin. Why? Because that fish is doable on light fly rods. And uh, he'll uh, he'll jump and jump and jump and jump. You don't think sometimes he's going to get back in the water. I love that. Uh, I love the striped marlin because they do it all. I never fished the uh, really big striped marlin off New Zealand but I've gotten more than more than than I can count off Ecuador, uh, when they were so thick there, and we got them in all different ways. But the usual way was to troll a teaser, and uh, uh, then uh, uh, pull the teaser out. And when the teaser hit the deck, you uh, take it out, take the boat out of gear, and make a cast.
0: How difficult was it traveling internationally back in those days? Easy. You had your own no plane. No problem. You had your own plane. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> did you? You did have your own plane. No, I didn't have my own plane. I thought you were just going to go with it. <laughs> no. Oh, no. 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 Because I'm not a fly. Boy. You know, what's interesting with uh, the guy, the early pioneers like Zane Gray, when he was fishing in Australia, he would leave in a sailboat and it would take three weeks for him to get there. And then it'd take him three weeks to get home. And he would be gone for a number of months. Um, but that was beyond. Comprehension to me to go fishing in Australia and have to sail there for three weeks and then return. So, the early pioneers, how much influence did they have on you?
1: A lot. Uh, I, I read about their exploits and uh, salivated over them, <laughs> you know, and couldn't wait to do it. And then I did it.
0: Who was your favorite uh, pioneer? Didn't have a favorite. Like, who were the other ones that, uh, other than Zane Gray?
1: Well, um, uh, All the guys that were fishing for
0: Marlin, it didn't didn't make
1: any difference. I didn't have a hero.
0: Right, right. Uh, Did you start pursuing these billfish with fly?
1: Yeah, and I wanted to do it better than they did. Uh, Here's what I mean. These guys were trolling teasers. I wanted to get away from the teaser and the chuck and duck. I wanted to fish them kind of like like we do tarpon, except in deep water. So when I went to Ecuador, there were so many... uh, a small and medium striped marlin, that we could do that. We could leave the big boat in a panga and uh, come up on some feeding marlin or else tailing marlin, just like tailing bonefish except huge, and uh, I could make a real fly cast with a uh, a, 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 a long uh, lefty deceiver type but bigger than you would use for tarpon, for example, quite a bit bigger and uh, and uh, or sometimes a popper. We experimented with all different types of flies and rigs and I, I decided to do my own thing and to figure out my own way of doing it, not to do what everybody else was doing. I'd caught so many of them uh, with the teaser and Chuck and Duck method that that got to be something I didn't want to do
0: anymore. So you re- reestablished a new way of, of doing things. Well, with, I don't know with, that uh, others uh, hadn't done it but, uh, did they fo- did they follow your your methodology shortly thereafter?
1: I don't think many of them did. I don't think many of them do that now. It's it's a thing to have a panga and a, an Ecuadorian rowing it out there uh, and uh, and catch a marlin on a cast like he would a tarpon.
0: What was that like? I mean, how big a seas were they? And he's rowing this panga.
1: Not big seas. Pretty flat. Yeah. The secret was the corriente which is their word for current, uh, you wanted to get the Humboldt current coming up from Antarctica, because when it collided with the Trans-Pacific uh, current, which was hot, uh, you had a collision of, cur- of current temperatures. And uh, our hosts lived there, and they knew that. So uh, uh, my, uh, one of my hosts was Emilio Bacarizo, whose uh, uh, grandfather had been president of Ecuador, And he had all kinds of influence there and that sort of thing. But he was a a devout uh, fisherman, and he had his own boat and crew. And uh, uh, he would he would send the way he would get me there. He'd send me a plane ticket (laughs) and say, "Okay, I've 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 dated this plane ticket for when the
0: current changes." (laughs) Perfect.
1: (laughs) And and I'd always uh, go with it.
0: Were you teaching a lot of these
1: people in your travels? Yes. Yeah, that, I, I love to teach. I did an awful lot of teaching when I was a surgeon, teaching surgery and that sort of thing and medical things. Uh, and uh, I loved to do that because I love to share information.
0: Right. Um, speaking with Steve Huff, he uh, came up with the knot, a combi- Huffenagel knot, right. a, combi- a combination of light tackle and heavy when he was fishing in, I think, Panama with, with uh, uh, Tom Evans. What, what connection were you using with light tackle to heavy bite tippet back then?
1: Uh, we used what, uh, what we call a, used to call a Carolina knot that my father had learned. It was the forerunner of the Bimini twist. But instead of putting your finger in the loop and twisting it round and round, right. uh, you had an, uh, an assistant hold the line tight and then you wound it, and then you got to the top, you put a half hitch in and wound it back the other way.
0: Um, oh, interesting. Yeah. So it was basically a bimini twist. Yeah. You just do just, it differently. Just, just yeah. yeah but,
1: but nobody gives those Carolina guys credit. They were doing it for years and years and years. Right. And we used the Huffnagle, but before we did the Huffnagle, we used a similar one. Instead of the double overhand knot, we used a single overhand knot. Mm-hmm. When you put a single ha- uh, uh, overhand knot, let's say, in a bite tippet, it's there to stay.
0: Right. So you would take the double line off the bimini through an overhand and still do the half hitches on the other side of the overhand? Well,
1: yeah, we want it to spring load it. Now, I don't want to get any more complicated than we have to here, but I would do a furl. I'd take the two limbs of the bimini, cut the loop, and then uh, part A goes over part B uh, 40 times, and then you hold it, and then part B goes over part A 40 times, and then you bring it down. Now you've got a furl. Right. If you want to furl a furl, you double it over and do it again for half that. Now you've got a graded spring load. It was just beautiful. Wow. And that was my own my own trick.
0: Does anybody use that not anymore? Is it famous to no.
1: become? No, I I, I, I didn't. I did, I showed my friends. Didn't ever publish it or anything like that.
0: You were a great innovator.
1: Well, that was my thing. Right. You know that's why I was doing experimental surgery. Loved it.
0: Right. What other innovations did you have in, in the fishing world?
1: Well, let's take the Bimini Hitch. We started on that. My dad and I caught many, many tarpon on a standard Bimini Hitch. Um, and we noted that uh, if you had several fish on the same leader, that the weakest knot in the system was the Bimini Hitch. It would break where where you come back and start your uh and start your second twist. right? And we also noticed if we we had a fish on like a great big shark, um, my dad hooked a white shark on fly one time, and we fought that fish and fought that fish and fought that. We were on him for hours. It wasn't my catch, it was his. We never landed it, and it broke at the the, uh, top of the Bimini Hitch. Uh, Then we decided that if we had a fish on like a big female tarpon that just took you forever... Uh, uh, an expression I like to use is the way we fished them was if they're just too big to handle, you just hold on to them till they die of old age and then bring them in. <laughs> <laughs> I think
0: a lot of the guys in Homosassa refined that technique, right?
1: Oh, well, sure, because now the way to do it is obvious, uh, and it's the way you do it. Right. Uh, you put pressure on the fish to the max, but not enough to break off, and you break his spirit you don't break the tarpon. Right. So when you release him, he's a he's a go. Right. You don't have to push him with a push
0: pull to turn him over. Right, no, uh, that's very important. I think a lot of people really have never been taught how to pull well, how to pull hard. And one of the things um, I've always noticed is if I lift with my legs and my back, my sure. arms can stay relatively straight, use the butt of the rod, and you can catch these fish very effectively. A lot of people, have a tendency to fish, fight fish with a big bend. So once you start to bend the rod higher, all the pressure goes to your bicep, sure. which is a smaller muscle. Uh-huh. You, you, you lose the big muscles, and also, too, you go to the small muscle of the rod. That tip has no resistance. So once they figure out how to keep the big muscles in play, you catch fish quickly.
1: No question about it. We yeah. learned that a long time ago.
0: But nobody really taught it very well, I, no, I think. No, I know.
1: I know. You had to learn it yourself.
0: Right wasn't in the books. Right. Um, Did you put it there? Well, I tried to put a few in there. No, you did. Well, thank you. Yeah. Um, What kind of tackle were you guys using back then to fight these big fish?
1: Okay, that depends on the era. Uh, My fishing eras include the Depression, which is uh, the crash occurred in 1929. I was born in 1930, but I was a little kid in fishing. Now, back then, uh, nobody had any money. We didn't have much, but my father was the only father on the block that had a job. Uh, And so we had uh, enough money, but not to spend on on good tackle. Uh, My Uncle Malcolm did have a lot more money because he was successful in the uh, stock market. And he'd help us out. He'd he'd bring me to New York City, to uh, uh, Madison Avenue, to... uh, uh, to uh, uh, the fly shop there, Abercrombie and Fitch, Right. and he'd let me pick out a, a bamboo rod. Why? Because bamboo. Uh, there were only two types of rods. One was bamboo, and there were many different types of bamboo rods, uh, or else greenheart, uh, uh, which was uh, a, a very very stiff hardwood, okay for surf casting with a fly, uh, but not not for ordinary fly fishing. So it was bamboo. The fly lines, as you know, were designated entirely differently on the basis of diameter for each segment, rather than weight. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he used, me-
0: used to call that a gaff, right? Weight gaff. Yeah. Yep.
1: Yep. And uh, and so he'd buy uh, he'd buy me a fly line when I couldn't afford one, and uh, I'm, you know, I'm a kid uh, at this time, and uh, we fished with those bamboo rods. Uh, well. They were a nightmare in the salt water. First of all, they had ferals. And the first thing that would happen with every single feral on the market would be uh, uh, frozen after a season of fishing in the salt. So, what we did was to just uh, use them as one piece rods because they'd all
0: freeze up. Uh, what do you mean by frozen?
1: Uh, uh, corroded. Corroded. You couldn't get them apart.
0: Oh, okay. And the with ferrules, the salt right.
1: water, they'd take a set. Right. So, every year you had to revarnish it. And we would uh, hang the rods up by the tip top.
0: So they wouldn't get the bend out of so them, that, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. Had, we had the cup hooks in the ceiling at our place on Fire Island. Yeah. And, uh, and we, we'd hang them. And then the backing was a uh, cutty hunk. Do, do you know what that is? No. It's woven linen. Right. It was made by a company called Ashaway in Connecticut. And, and it would rot just like silk, but silk rotted faster. The uh, So what we did was to, uh, every time, every day after fishing, we would take the uh, backing off the reel and wind it around the tops of the dining room chairs. In, in my dining room, I lived on Long Island. My mother would come down in the morning and say, get this stuff off there. You know, <laughs> We're having breakfast. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> you know. I, I remember seeing old photographs of that. Because if you didn't, you had one rot spot, and that would that would kill you. All you need is one. You lose the fly line and the fish and everything else. And boy, did we learn that the hard way. And what about reels? Uh, We used uh, old Hardy reels that were made for salmon fishing in fresh water. And I I couldn't afford new ones, so I bought used ones. Right. But uh, uh, then, then okay. Um, The um, leaders, uh, nylon hadn't been invented. There was no such thing as monofilament. So we used what was called catgut. Right. It wasn't cat gut. It was uh, uh, made from connective tissue from the, uh, from the abattoirs. And it was uh, a, a process of, of, of redding it, which is soaking it in lye and that sort of thing to make it translucent, not never transparent. And then they dried it and they'd coil it up. Well, you couldn't use it right away. You had to soak it overnight and then make a liter out of it.
0: Wow. Yeah. What an effort. Yeah.
1: And then after the war, well, let me take you through the war. During the war years, you couldn't buy anything metal. You could buy at great expense pre-war this and pre-war that. Just before the war in 41, a company, and I don't remember the name of the company, came out with a fly rod uh, made out of beryllium copper. And it was a a step rod, uh, tubular, but step rod and it was one piece. And uh, my Uncle Malcolm got me one of those and I tried it. It didn't survive the war because copper became a strategic material and all metal stuff uh, just disappeared from all the shelves. But we fished with that beryllium copper for a while, uh, fly rod, not many people know that.
0: When was the big transition to equipment that was really um, sufficient,
1: if you will? It was after the war. Now during the war, we had some, uh, I'll get to that, we had some interesting fishing times. I spent my summers out on Fire Island, uh, Long Island, just south of Long Island, it was right on the ocean with with uh, uh, Great South Bay be between us and the mainland of Long Island. Uh, and uh, uh, we had a house at Ocean Beach there, my grandparents did, and uh, uh, we had… Incredible fishing. Why? Because all the uh, commercial fishermen were fishermen were at war,
0: uh, so, the so there was no
1: competition. W- the, the The pound nets were all pulled up for the duration for four four or five years. Uh, all the uh, uh, the shore nets were pulled up; just the sticks left. They they left the fish alone, and the fishing exploded. It was just incredible.
0: What kind of fish were you catching at the time? Striped bass,
1: bluefish. Uh, tuna everywhere you could go just a little bit just behind the breakers sometimes and they'd be hordes of uh, of uh, bluefin tuna usually school tuna not the monsters right and we'd fish them on a fly i've caught a lot of tuna on fly that way it's a lot of work yeah and they don't jump yeah that's, that's, that's the bit. thing i've
0: got against them <laughs> we also mentioned about the silvery leap of a of a, an atlantic salmon tell me about your salmon exploits
1: uh, okay, I've uh, uh, fished uh, Maine and Canada for Atlantic salmon, and uh, uh, just just love those fish. They were, they were uh, the one freshwater fish which I considered a challenge. Uh, uh, they would jump like mad. Uh, in fact, uh, the name of the, the scientific name is Salmo salar. The word Salo in Latin means jumper, leaper. Oh, that's right. Yeah, and it was well-named. And even the grills, which were small Atlantic salmon, first time return, uh, they were just wonderful.
0: I, Dad, did you ever fish with uh, Lee Wolf up there by chance? No. No. Uh,
1: I, I He knew, was probably after you fished? No, I knew Joan very well. Right. I never really got to know uh, Lee very well. I met him once or twice, and that was about it.
0: Right. Um, tell, me, tell me these other passions that you have traveling the world, you were mentioning Australia and the Galapagos. Yes. What made those areas so special to you? The fish
1: but, well they were but they, they were special areas anyway. Even then there'd been no, no no fish they'd have been. There's a, an, a, a site of interest, something you have never seen before, uh, several times a day in the Galapagos. It was incredible. like it, we'd be on the island of Hood and they'd be all these albatrosses uh, sitting on their eggs. And you could go right up and you could pet a female albatross while she's sitting on her eggs. Where can else can you do that? Right. You know, uh, just all kinds of things. But the fishing was absolutely fantastic. The waters teemed with fish. One reason, nobody fishing. We had special permission to go places where uh, it was closed to the public. Uh, through how, how did you get that permission? Through uh, Emilio, Emilio Baccariso. He had... To put it in his words, it all depends on the friends in the government, in Quito.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You do that so well. (laughs) Like I said before, it's great to have friends in high places.
1: uh, Dave Sylvester and I and Bob Andre, we would go there, and Bob Andre and I were both uh, MDs, doctors, and uh, so uh, we would... uh, uh, Amelia would set it up that we were doctors there to do to study the diseases of the fish. You now well, you can't do that unless you catch them. So Very we, we had the permit to do that, and it was just fantastic. We did not do marlin in the Galapagos. Our quest was for uh, uh, light tackle fly fishing, snook, uh, and uh, all the different uh, species there, but but mainly the tremendous Galapagos snook. They look just like uh, our uh, Septromatus uh, snook here in uh, in in the Florida Keys and all through Florida, but they tell me it's a it's a separate subspecies. I don't know whether that's true or not. Right. But what they, size were these fish? Uh, and that's the thing, they were juveniles. You could catch one six inches long, and the next one might weigh forty five pounds.
0: Wow. Yeah. On and, the, on the same fly.
1: No. Oh no. I was going to say
0: that six-inch fish is going to eat something a little bit different.
1: Yeah, but they, but they were so hungry they'd eat almost anything. It didn't make any. If it moved, they hit
0: it. But you caught snook up to forty-five pounds.
1: Oh yeah, oh yeah. Um,
0: How does a snook rank in your world of of fish and respect? I know that like some of the great fishermen that used to do all the termites and tarpon termites now are are just they gravitated to snook. That's all they fish for.
1: Excellent. Uh, he eats. He fights. He jumps. He does everything right. And then when you're finished with him, he tastes just great. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um,
1: Unless you don't skin him,
0: right? Then they taste
1: like soap. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And it was and they were called soapfish. Yeah. First um, one I caught was at Hillsborough Inlet when I first moved to Florida, and we didn't know that. And I prepared it with the skin on and fried it, and it was—it literally tasted like a bar of uh, Fell's Nephthys soap.
0: Now, did you ever fish with Tommy Green up there? Um, he used to fish for snook religiously and caught a lot of big fish up in that area, Fort Lauderdale. But he's much younger than you. I didn't know if maybe. You'd no, fish but for him. I knew him. I
1: did. I never. I I didn't fish with him. Right. And uh, uh, he had an inter- interest in a tackle store, as you know. Uh, and a matter of fact, it was in his store that Bill Hegley, you remember, what happened sure. to him?
0: Yeah, he died, and with uh, it was Craig he who Brewers. taught me
1: the bimini hitch. Interesting. And I said, "Well, you're just doing the Carolina knot, but you're using the twist." A new name. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> um, tell me, tell me about the Saratoga fish you were mentioning.
1: Uh, that's a hoot. Uh, it it looks very much like a tarpon. Uh, It gets up to uh, perhaps 100 pounds, but not more than that. Uh, A lot of small ones. It lives in the billabongs, which a billabong is a river in uh, Australia, which during the uh, dry season never makes it to the sea, so it becomes still. Right. And uh, uh, these fish have a mouth that looks just like a tarpon, but instead of being silver, they're kind of gold. Some of them are brown, but some of them are, are shimmering gold, and uh, uh, they uh, uh, they'll eat uh, anything that moves. But there's a time of the year there, excuse me, and I happen to be there then when they eat dragonflies. Uh, even a big, you wouldn't think he'd get enough to eat out of a dragonfly. Although the dragonflies were pretty big, but they'd be uh, the dragonflies would be flying over the lily pads. And uh, uh, if you saw one leap up in the air, it would grab a uh, dragonfly and come down in the water. If you saw that, then uh, we'd go over and uh, wait, and just wait, and wait, and be ready to cast with a dragonfly fly. And the idea was uh, that uh, as soon as the fish left the water to get a dragonfly, you keep making a series, you wait a while, and then you keep making a series of hover flies where you make the fly hover about four feet, maybe five feet above the lily pads. And if you're lucky, you'll have it in the air and that fish down below will see it and he'll come out of the water and take the fly. Midair. Yeah, and the flies never hit the water. that That's a hoot. I'd never seen anything like that before.
0: And how big were these fish that were jumping up, well, grabbing these?
1: The ones I got would average around 20 pounds. Right. But uh, the
0: big fish, the 100-pounders weren't doing that.
1: Yeah, once in a while they would, but I didn't catch one.
0: Wow. So you're basically kind of creating your own hatch by constantly casting and hovering that fly. Yeah. That's crazy. Um, The outback, did you ever chase the barramundi there? Oh, my, yes. That's a great fish too, right?
1: When I I went to Australia, I contacted Lefty, who put me on to Harrow, uh, who is uh, uh, Rod Harrison, and he's the Lefty Cray of Australia. They're very similar personalities, super fly uh, uh, people, and they knew each other quite well. And uh, uh, so I had two mentors in a way, Uh, especially when I fished the Torres Straits, which is just below New Guinea, and Lefty had done a lot of fishing there. But he contacted Harrow and made the introduction, and Harrow arranged for my guides while I fished there. And the first first thing he explained to me when I told him, well, you know, I kind of like to do my own thing. I don't know as I I want a guide. And he said, well, uh, you know, you're not going to survive it. You have to have a guide in Australia to stay alive. Right. And I've had many experiences where I'd have been dead without one.
0: Tell me about one. Well,
1: one is I was fishing with Craig Jenkins, who is a guide at Weeper, which is up on the York Peninsula on the... uh, uh, on the uh, Gulf of Carpenteria. And uh, we were fishing the beach, uh, f- uh, fly casting for coco, which is a type of trevelli, and uh, 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 blue salmon and a whole bunch of species I'd never seen before, and queenfish. And uh, I could see that there was some tuna out there just beyond my reach, but not a lot beyond my reach, because I can go the distance if I need to, or I could then. Uh, And uh, uh, Craig had pulled the skiff up on the sand, and he was uh, maybe 100 yards away from me. And I see this rock in the water, and I figure, you know, if I can wade out to that and stand on that rock, I got it made. And I start to walk out there uh, to get on the rock, and all of a sudden Craig comes up, and he sees what I'm doing, and he screams, no, 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 go back, go back. I think, well, what's this? He's crazy. You know, no, I went back and he comes right up and he says, if you put your foot on that rock, you'll find it's not a rock. It's what we call a stonefish. Immediately, 13 spines go right up through your sneaker and you won't make it back to the beach. Oh. I didn't know that. Oh, my Lord. If I'd been alone.
0: We would have called you spiny.
1: Yeah. <laughs> And then one day we were going from one fishing spot to another in a Jeep uh, with our guide driving the Jeep. And I said, you know, I'd love to see a cassowary bird. A cassowary bird is like an ostrich with little legs, but it's big, it weighs 80, 90 pounds. You know, and the reason it's called a cassowary bird is it eats something that no people can eat and no other animals that, that they knew of. It's the cassowary seed. It's a big seed like a, like a duck egg, uh, and it survives on those things. I didn't know that till I was taught that. Well, we're going along, and all of a sudden, the guide stops the Jeep. He says, God, he says, you called it. Here's a male cassowary bird with two chicks behind him. The males take care of the chicks, which is another story, while the female goes out and tries to get pregnant again. And this, uh, this bird was in the road, in our way, walking with the two chicks. I opened the back door where, where I was, took my camera and says, I got to get a picture of this. He says, get back in the car. And he explained to me, if you get out of the car, that bird will attack you because he's got chicks to protect. And he has a third toenail, which is like a Damascus sword. And he will run up and all 80 pounds of them will be behind that thing and he'll disembowel you on the spot.
0: Oh, my gosh. I didn't know that.
1: Now, if I'd been alone in yeah. that deep, they, uh, they they turned me away from uh, poisonous snakes that I didn't know were poisonous, and areas where the snake drops out of the tree and gets you, stuff like that. It's the
0: land of the fast and the dead.
1: Yeah. Uh, areas where you you can't go because there are too many poisonous spiders there that are really poisonous.
0: Did you spend a lot of time there?
1: I spent six weeks there. Just one time, or did you go back? Uh, no, I just made that one trip. My my wife and I were together, but it was the, uh, just fantastic fishing. I had some objectives, which is what I do when I go to certain places. I wanted to get a uh, GT, giant trevally on fly. I did that. I wanted to get a uh, trophy queenfish, which is a queenfish over 40 pounds on fly. I did that. Lots of smaller queenfish. I love the queenfish. I wanted to get a trophy bear Monday, and I did that. Did it all with Craig Jenkins, and I'd heard about the Saratoga, but I didn't know about the the uh, the, uh, uh, the getting them in the air uh, like I've just told you until I met Graham Williams, who had been uh, one of Lefty's guides, and uh, he took me there. I also wanted to get an ox-eye tarpon, which is an Indo-Pacific tarpon with a big eye, also known as big eye tarpon. Right. Well, I caught them in the billabongs, little, little ones, and then uh, later uh, caught them in the Torres Strait just off New Guinea, big ones. Well, not not like our tarpon, right. but by, by big I mean 40 to 50 pounds. Right. And it was just a hoot. So I met every personal objective and the rest of the time I spent with Priscilla, and my what, wife.
0: What well what a great adventure adventurous life you've had. What if there was one location that you could go back and revisit and refish? Where would that location be? Galapagos. Any one particular reason?
1: Uh, yeah, it was the diversity of the uh, fish and the diversity of everything else, including the birds. You you can literally be standing there with your fly rod. Waiting to make a cast and a bird alight on your head, or on your shoulder. They're not afraid.
0: So They've innocence. Never been innocence is abound.
1: Yeah, incredible. You, like I say, you could go up to those Galapagos, the
0: these big birds, and just pet them on the head, and uh, you know. Isn't that where they have the big turtles as well? Oh, tortoises, tortoise. not, not turtles. Yeah, tortoise, yes. Yeah.
1: And they're down in the volca- extinct volcanoes. So we, 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 we went and we took a couple of trips down there. And, and I took another trip uh, back there with my son, Kenny. Uh, and uh, uh, we took a jeep all around uh, 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 the different islands, uh, uh, just studying what to be found on the island, not just fishing. And and the Galapagos tortoises were there. It was really uh, fascinating.
0: Your imagination and and pursuit of the unknown is so vast. Are you still that way? Yes. At ninety years of age.
1: Yes, very much so.
0: What what excites you now? I mean, travel is limited. You just yep. experienced COVID. Right. You survived COVID. Yes. And I can't even imagine how scared you were when you were ill.
1: Well, you know, when I say survived COVID, I don't know that it was COVID. It was early in the game and they couldn't classify the virus, but it was as the COVID was uh, coming here. Uh, so, you know, and I've been inoculated uh, despite that anyway, just right. to take no chances.
0: So where's your where's your mind go now? Where do you get stimulation from? Well, you're here, here in Big Pine, since you're, since you're not traveling the world and catching all these wild fish. No, anymore. No,
1: but I have a computer. And I know how to use it, uh, which most 90-year-olds don't. Uh, it's an apple. And for years, I used it uh, for the Federation of Fly Fishers. I was on the casting board of uh, 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 of instructors. And uh, uh, I think they invited me to join there because they wanted to get into saltwater f- flycasting, which wasn't popular when I joined 20-something years ago. Uh, be that as it may, I enjoyed teaching fly casting, and I became an examiner, and I did a lot of uh, certifying of uh, guys that wanted to become master uh, certified teachers. Uh, well, uh, I got so deep into that that I started my own teaching group Ended up with about uh, with more than 400 students uh, on the computer all around the world,
0: which you do on a daily basis.
1: Yeah, more than a daily basis. I spent many, many hours doing that, and I did that for 14 years. That was called the Master Study Group, and it was the idea was that when uh, somebody had been on that Master Study Group for long enough and had participated properly, that uh, uh, he could pass an examination that was very difficult to pass. Now, for example, when I took the exam many years before, there were 12 of us, and I was the only one that passed, but that was typical of master exams. Right. And guys had to take it over and over and that sort of thing, you know.
0: Well, I th- I think you've received the Mel Krieger uh, yeah. Award of Casting. Yeah. I think from them. Um, why did you like to fish alone so much? Yeah. Um,
1: When I say alone, sometimes it would be with my buddy Dave Sylvester because we thought the same way. I didn't want to be out with somebody there that's hot to hook fish Mm -hmm. on a day when I just want to observe, that sort of thing. I wanted to do my own thing. I wanted to have some spots that were mine alone. Uh, It it was a thing for me. Uh, I didn't want anybody there uh, like a guide. He'd be in my way. Right. Uh, You know, but then when I got a grandson that could pull
0: (laughs) (laughs) back in the game, you don't mind having him know where that spot is either. But I find myself, I like being alone because I like the freedom of thought. Yes. If there's anybody in the boat, they're interrupting my privacy. They're interrupting my mind. And that is bothersome. And I find it so offensive hiking in the high country. People are walking and talking and blabbing. When I want to get up there and be alone and let my mind wander. You want to be looking and learning. Yeah, just feel free. How often do people really feel free in society? They wake up with a family, they have the feed, you go to work, you have phone calls and the computer, you get home. The same process over and over. I feel sorry for people that don't have the mental freedom. I agree with you,
1: and uh, that's just one of the reasons why I liked to fish alone, too.
0: What do you have um, at this point, other than the computer? Do you live a lot through memories?
1: Yes. Quite often? Yes, I've got some incredibly vivid memories.
0: You're You're so sharp, it's amazing. Well. You're brilliant. You are a genius. Not really. It it, it is really. I mean, you've proven that in your world of medicine and in the fishing world, all your innovations and your creativity. I got a couple of granddaughters that are probably smarter than me.
1: Uh, Both of them have graduated from college summa cum laude as the top uh, person in the class.
0: The DNA is alive and well in your family. (laughs) Great DNA. Um, Tell me about a good friend of yours, Paul Dixon. Paul Dixon.
1: Yes. Paul is a guide, and that's uh, putting it mildly. He's one of the best guides, if not the best, that I have ever run into. Uh, And I teach guides. Uh, One of my greatest pleasures is to take one of our guides here in the Keys who says, I've got a young guy coming from Carolina. Gordy, would you mind taking him under your wing and showing him how we do it here? And I'd work with him for whatever time it took, that sort of thing. Well, Paul and I became friends on Long Island because he was the uh, primo guide at Montauk, which is right at the bitter end of, uh, of Long Island. And that's where there's super action with uh, all kinds of saltwater fish, especially striped bass, tuna, and uh, giant bluefish, all kinds of bluefish and all that. Uh, and he is strictly a fly guide. For a while he owned a fly shop uh, there, and uh, uh but he uh, but like i say he's the premier guide and uh he had heard about me and i'd heard about him and one day i was up there visiting my daughter and uh i contacted him he said you know i've heard about you gordy you used to live here didn't you and i said yeah i used to fish a whole lot of spots here and uh, uh you know back when nobody was fly fishing he said, I'd like to hear about that. So I, I, I got with him and talked about it. Uh, and uh, then he said, well, you know, I, I, I'm booked up. He says, but I tell you what, I'll lend you one of my Hughes boats if you want to fish at Montauk. And I said, you're on. I brought my brother Dave with me. He had a 20-foot Hughes, which is a small craft for fishing offshore at Montauk. I mean, those are seas be, beyond the lighthouse that, that, that really get rough. And uh, uh, I suddenly realized where well, those guys are all fishing, they later called it combat fishing. There were so many boats. Guy would make a back cast and catch, uh, catch the cap of a guy in the boat behind him, that sort of thing. Yeah. And they'd scream and yell at each other. It's a New York scene. You sure. Know?
0: Chasing but, blitzes, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I, I went out with Dave and I said, you know, here's the way they do it. They, they get out there, and you've got a school of uh, stripers. You make a couple of casts. You catch a striper or two or don't, and then everybody leaves. Why? Because they see the birds over here, uh, and then do it over here and here. Why don't we just stay where we are and wait? Maybe they'll come up here. And the fleet would go way off, burning a whole lot of fuel and everything. We'd just stay where we were. And then right close to us would uh, would uh, would come a school of fish, and we'd catch a couple of them. By the time they arrived, we already had our fish. And then we took it a step further. Dave and I uh, used to fish together. He, we're only 13 months apart, and uh, he was a fly fisherman too. And he said, Gordy, you know, we got the spots that we fished in the 1930s and the 1940s i bet these guys don't know those spots. I wonder if they still have fish. So we disappeared, and Paul and the guys wondered where we went. We hit the spots that we had been fishing as kids, and, yeah, they had fish and no boats. Awesome. It, yeah, it was, it was just neat. Well, Paul and I became very good friends. Uh, we fished many, many times together up there, and then we started fishing in Florida. Uh, I took Paul out one day. He wanted to catch his first tarpon and he wanted it recorded, so he brought his uh, photographer on board, and it was a beautiful day. I don't remember what month, might have been June, and I took him out uh, with this photographer and the photographer set up the tripod and had all kinds, of figured, oh boy, I, the pressure's on me now, and I'm not used to that. I gotta get Paul a fish. You know what happens? Of course, I spent all day long, and I couldn't find a tarpon, and then, the day got long and the cameraman is looking at his watch and Paul is standing on one leg and then the other and gets off the foredeck. And I, I, I took him over to one of my spots out east of here, um, one, one of the islands. I, I don't wanna say exactly which one it was. That's my ace in the hole. And I pulled up there and here come two big fellas. They're both over a hundred pounds nice tarpon and they're relaxed and they are coming blooping, and they're right near the shore I mean they're like 20 feet from the shore and it's flat calm the wind's on the other side of the island see I'm in the lee and I, I pull up on him and I think to myself the first thing I have to remember is that Paul is used to striking fish immediately he's going to pull that fly right out of his mouth and I told him that, Paul says, yeah, yeah, I know how to fish, Gordy." I says, yeah, I know you do, but he said, oh, leave me alone. All right, fine, okay. But I wasn't going to let that happen. And that's when I, on the spot, developed a way that I have regularly for trout fishermen who will do this repeatedly all day long, pull the fly right out of the tarpon's mouth. Uh But I didn't use that technique, but all this is going through my brain. I figured i got to do something, got to do something. Here comes the tarpon. Uh, i got to think fast. The tarpon comes right up. Paul has his usual perfect cast. Oh, he's a beautiful cast. He put that fly exactly in the right position. The tarpon takes the fly. You could see it just beautifully. I'm on the polling platform, and, and that fish is coming toward us. Now I got to do something because Paul is fiddle-farting with the, and I know as soon as he's going to come tight, he's going to, he's going to try to hook that fish with the rod. So I took my foot on the push pole platform. The tarpon is now about 20 feet away from us. I went like that, stomped on it, that tarpon goes, whoop, and turns right around. Paul gets, comes tight and he, uh, now he's automatically hooked up, but he, but he both strip strikes and strikes him with the rod at the same time. Now the Photographer takes the picture. The, fly, the poon is in the air, but the fly line, which was all over the deck because Paul hadn't taken it up, is now in the air in great coils and <laughs> twists in the air, and that fish came down. But Paul could handle that, and he wound that fly line up just fine, came tight on that top and, and landed him. Beautiful. And that picture, I'll never forget it. Well, what? now now my trick is this. If I have a uh, trout fisherman uh, who hasn't done any saltwater fishing before, and I, I give him two or three times to pull that fly out of that tarpon's mouth, I know he's not listening to me. Uh, his brain comes apart the minute he sees that tarpon, and he gets what we call a KK. That's a knee knocker. When he's <laughs> knee's knocked together, you know no good
0: is going to come of this. <laughs> you know, I used to yank the fly out of the tarpon's face, we all, For, uh, we all. I mean, it's just the, the, the that's what you do with the first time you see a, a tarpon explode on your fly. I used to look at my right hand and yell at my right hand because yeah. every time I go, okay, "Keep your cool, keep your cool." The fish would come up, start to rise, and boom, he'd eat your fly, and the right hand would always come up. Oh my God, it just drove me crazy. I had I had nightmares, you know, about this hand because I lose so many fish, but. Let's go back to one of the things that you were mentioning last night after the first podcast we did. You were talking about navigating offshore before GPS, and you were looking for big wrecks, I think, to the north of, of Key West.
1: If I, if I may, uh, let me just go back to that tarpon thing one more, because oh, sure. I got a little trick that I'd like sure. you, you to use this podcast to teach people. Okay. okay, absolutely. Here's my solution. I've got a trout fisherman. He, the last five fish, he's pulled the fly out of his mouth. That's over a three-day period of time. i got to do something. So now I tell him, look, we're going to do this differently. You're going to make the cast to the fish, uh, and then you put the rod under your right arm. Use a two-hand strip. The, the fish takes the fly. In my, now, by the time he fiddle-farts around and gets that rod up in his hand and everything, he can do whatever he wants. He's probably going to hook that fish. Right it's 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 magic
0: well i've been I, i've i've proven that methodology wrong too <laughs> double hand stripping because you can always turn your body <laughs> well, i have slid it out by turning my body too soon trying to get tight but you're right a lot that has helped a lot of people you know um but let's go to that navigational right. thing if yeah. you're ready Yes, I am. Tell me about that when you were navigating you know, offshore a number of miles trying to get to a deep wreck. Yeah, well, we knew where
1: the wreck was according to Navy uh, records, but that was where the ship either got torpedoed or hit one of our own mines. It was the place where the explosion occurred. It wasn't where the ship was, and there were all kinds of currents out there. So the Navy coordinates never worked. The ship was always somewhere else. It wasn't on the bottom where they said it was. And uh, uh, it was before the days of GPS anyway. Uh, but we used Loran C, which was a pain in the neck. And we had the coordinates and all, the wreck was never there, none of these wrecks. So what we did was to figure that the tides and the incoming tide would be usually out off Key West would be one direction and and then 180 degrees from it in the other direction wherever you were, whether you were on the ocean side or the Gulf side. And so what we would do would be to put, uh, we'd get uh, uh, as close as we could to where the Navy said it was and we'd put over an anchored buoy with a flag on it and a flagpole so we could see it from a great distance. Always do it on a calm day. And then we would run a grid. But the grid was limited to either east or west, or almost east or west, depending on how we knew the currents would go, and we double-checked that the currents anyway by anchoring and using a chip log, uh, so we knew we knew the current scenario, figuring that the ship would go down not where the wind was pushing it so much, but where the water was taking it. Right, and uh, and we found several of the wrecks that way including the Ed Luckenbeck, which was the one that we were uh, especially anxious to find. She was an ore ship that went down when it hit one of our own mines uh, 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 north of uh, Key West in the Gulf. Well, uh, then we began to be able to find it, but now we wanted to be able to find it even in rough weather, which is another story. Uh, so we figured out a system of mathematics where we could uh, uh, run to Smith Shoal, which is just north of Key West, and uh, uh, then take a chip log, uh, anchor, take a chip log, figure the direction and the velocity of the current. Uh, We would take the wind into account and uh, come up with a uh, mathematical formula which would give us the probability of uh, of our best heading to find that wreck. And we uh, uh, honed it down until we had it just right. We would then run past Smith Shoal, uh, just like our math told us to do. And then, while we we're running at exactly the same number of RPMs every time, nobody can move in the boat. You can't even move a beer can. That was the rule. Uh, then it
0: would show. It would it would change the the uh, the weight of the boat. It would change the direction of the boat. The Direction of the boat. Just enough that it, you'd be right. that much
1: more off. Right. You 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 know everything stays the same, and then I take a back azimuth on uh, with a Polaris on uh, Smith's Shoal, uh, apply it to a trigonometric formula, which I had devised myself, using a cosine table, and uh, come up with the uh, uh, with the change of direction if one was required. That might be half a degree. It might be one degree. In either direction. It might be as much as two degrees, and on a rough day it could be five degrees, you see. But using that method, we had a a high probability of either ending up when when we clicked the stopwatch, a number of seconds, we'd clip the stopwatch, cut the engines, and put over the flag. Uh, We were never, never completely right on the wreck. But it didn't take long to find it. Running our grid, sure, the current grid until we found it. What was the
0: fishing like once you found it?
1: Unbelievable, the cobia fishing was so good we stopped fishing for them. I mean, we'd take one for dinner. That that's it, and uh, it just wasn't fun to catch them because they were swarming all over the place. And I may have told you this story. I can't remember, but we'd have luncheon. Priscilla would put in some green grapes for us, and my father would take the green grapes and hand-feed the cobias, and they would come right up and take it out of his fingers, just like Suck that. Suck it right out of their fingers. Yeah,
0: yeah. Oh, how beautiful.
1: Yeah, but the permit would be down below, and uh, we would put a crab fly down and let it sink, and just about every time you had a permit on for that. Right, cut, right. You know,
0: But you also, too, witnessed Mel Fisher's son dying when they sunk the ship out there when yes. they treasure hunting tell me about that story
1: well we were running out from key west and it wasn't toward the uh, it wasn't to uh to the north to the looking back it was to the east because we wanted to fish the valbonera passenger ship that went down in uh um i think it was 1912 um uh, on on uh um uh, uh, half moon shoal past the quicksands. And so we were on the way out there. And, uh, I looked to my right, which is to the North. And I, I see a, a ship. I didn't know it was Mel's ship at the time. And, uh, it looked, uh, as if it had gone down or was just in the process of sinking.
0: Listing terribly.
1: Yeah. And we started to run for it because we could see that there was trouble there. And, uh, uh, we almost got there when a whole fleet of boats led by a Coast Guard uh, cutter uh, was on the way there too. And my father and I figured that we're just gonna be in the way. So we took off not knowing that anybody had died, frankly, uh, and not knowing that it was Mel's ship, even though we knew the other one of Mel's ship was out there and uh, we knew of Mel's efforts. We, had taken issue with some of them because it destroyed a couple of our special markers, but that's another story. We ran and fished and, and came back and, and uh, found that when we came back, there were boats anchored uh, over that uh, area, and we figured we better not disturb it. It wasn't until we got to shore that we uh, got the story.
0: That he had passed. Yeah. Well, I, I cannot express fully enough how much I really appreciate you your life, your legacy, what you've done to society, putting new hips in all these people, giving them a life, you know, a full life after that injury or whatever. I've got a replaced knee. 16 years later, I'm still chasing elk and doing everything I can. So you've not only given so much through your medical um, experience and, and your profession and your genius, but your fishing career and sharing your story is so enlightening because i don't know of anybody i know a lot of fishermen but i don't know of anybody that's experienced quite as much as you have and i so appreciate your story
1: well i appreciate you having me i'll tell you one other story with respect i know you're trying to close Uh, uh, but when i retired uh i uh had all my old patients come to introduce them to my new partner who was gonna be taking over my practice. And uh, they blocked the Federal Highway, uh, the my old patients, uh, for two hours, uh, and nobody could get through, just the people coming into Holy Cross Hospital where I had done all those surgeries. It was really, uh, a lifetime experience to do that. Wow. And the hospital put up a uh, bronze plaque on my own operating room. I had my own operating room there. Uh, and i have never forget that appreciation because that meant a lot to me.
0: Well, you've given this world such, such great re- pleasures through your experiences in fishing and, and your innovations and also giving people their lives back through your medical what genius. Nice. So thank you so much.
1: Thank you. I've enjoyed every minute of it. Me too.
0: Thanks, pal. (laughs) Early stories like Gordy's is exactly what Millhouse is all about, preserving history. Thank you, Gordy. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do us a huge favor and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to see more content or behind the scenes, please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. We'll see you again soon so it's just a